Hello and welcome to the podcast, What I Wish I Knew as an NQT slash ECT, with me, Jeremy Crook. This is a show where my guests and I will share with you our experiences, both good and bad, of life as a new teacher. Today, I'm talking to Jill Haysham, who's been in education in Essex for 34 years. She's been a class teacher, mathematics subject leader, and worked within senior management. She's also worked for Essex Local Authority as a mathematics advisor, implementing the national numeracy strategy and working in the wider field of mathematics, including working with NQTs and students in the Essex Skip programme. Now she's a freelance education advisor. If you think that sounds like Jill must know an amazing amount about great teaching and learning in maths, you'd be It's not true. (laughs) It is true. But don't just take my word for it. Following some recent training that Jill led in an Essex school, one of the participants said, Jill is the best consultant I have worked with or had training from, by far. Her relaxed and calm personality instills confidence with fantastic enthusiasm and passion for the subject. So we've got a lot to look forward to in our chat today. Jill, welcome. What a great build-up. So I know it's going to be marvellous. Or downhill from here. I'm not sure which. <laughs> <laughs> of course it's not. So what made you love teaching, Jill? I love children ever since I was little. I, I was never the person who, who played schools uh, as a child, but I've always, from kind of teenage years and up, loved spending time with children. I see them as little people rather than people to talk down to. I respect them. And mm. When somebody in my past said to me, well, why don't you become a teacher? It was it was almost like a natural, yeah, that fits really well. I enjoy spending time with them. They make me laugh and seeing them grow as people. That's a bit, that's a bit of a buzz, isn't it? Yeah, it's a big buzz. And, and like you say, they make you laugh, don't they? And, and I spoke to someone recently on the, on the podcast and, and we were talking about just how important it is to have fun in class and to laugh and because it's a long time isn't it for a young child to be in class and not have fun every day but it's it's always been in my philosophy i've always thought you know if i can make children enjoy being in the classroom then i'm doing a good job and it's only recently that brain science has come out and said Mm. that you know that is the perfect conditions for learning when you're feeling safe then you're ready to learn so it's quite nice having that validated when it was your gut feeling anyway you know, yeah. if you've got children on side, then they're going to do most of what you want them to do because they understand you respect them, they respect you, and they want to be there. Yeah, absolutely. I keep saying all the time to, to anyone who cares to listen, the relationship is what matters because once you get that right with every child in your class, then you can do amazing things with them, can't you? Absolutely. It's turning them on, isn't it? it? It's igniting them. It's it's motivating them. It's it's making them interested, making them curious. It's quite hard sometimes with a class of 30. You know, there are some children I can think of in my career that you just find it harder to click with yeah. because they're more complex personalities or there are other issues going on in the background that you don't know about and you're just a, another adult and they don't really respect adults. So certainly, you know, if you, it is the job of the teacher who's the adult in the room to work at those relationships, but I've never got that 100% right. 
in yeah, every but you company. can't can you can you ever get it 100 percent right because like you say you're working with 30 unique individuals you are who come but I with think it's, a, it's your job to try your hardest to do that oh um, you've I, got I, to yeah and i've worked in my career where i just think why are you in teaching because you obviously don't bother and you don't like children so what the heck are you doing here well it's uh, a hideous job isn't it if you don't like children hilarious. Because because to be with 30 children and you're not doing much to get them excited by their learning and therefore they're quite difficult to get to work, crikey, I can't think of anything much worse than Whereas spending six like hours with a group of 30 children and they're not interested in what you're doing. And then it's... A, it, so if, if you're telling them that you can do this, then guess what? They start to believe it and that's mm. the whole point of teaching, I think. Well, it is. Our job, more than anything, isn't it, is to get children to believe that that anything is possible and you just got to work hard and then you can do it. And that's the growth mindset stuff. But, you know, it, that belief might not come from the child. It's got to come from the teacher. I believe yeah. you can do this. And if, if children are told that often enough um, in school, even if they're not hearing it from home, then children can perform and children will perform. Yeah, they will. And you do have to keep saying it. So have you said that right from the start of your career? On day one, when you went into class, were you, uh, were you saying oh. to children, hey, children, you can do it? Or were you thinking... You no, know I, don't, I don't think I did. No, um, I don't I, think any of us did, did they? No, They're much better I, I trained back. now, aren't they, trainees, don't you oh, think? Oh, definitely. I look back at my training, and I still remember landing in Harlow, uh, in a really tough catchment in Harlow, and I was not prepared for the disconnect between my upbringing and the, the upbringing of the mm. catchment that I was working in. Um, so I wasn't prepared for that emotionally, for that social difference that, that I was exposed to. I wasn't prepared um, technically because in 1988, there was no national curriculum. No. And I still remember going to my mentor at the time, um, who shall remain nameless, and I said to her, what do I teach? And she said, well, what do you want to teach? Ah. There was no national guidance. There was nothing that said, this is what you should do in year four, this is what you should do in year two. It was make it up. So yeah. for experienced teachers, that was great. You developed that over time. But as an NQT, I remember just thinking, oh, my God, what do I do? And I had to invent a curriculum from nothing. Yeah, and I exactly. remember that being absolutely frightening. So looking at how I was trained compared to what's there for teachers now, completely different world, I think. No, it is a completely different world. I, you saying that about there was no curriculum, I can remember going on holiday to France in the summer before I started my NQT year and lying on the beach with three or four books around me trying to think, what on earth am I going to teach? I don't know. And trying to map out a year's, because yeah. like you say, most schools as well, they didn't have schemes of work, did they? Nope. Even nope. within the school, you you literally just made it up and pitched it where you wanted to pitch it. And but all that, of that is quite that tricky when you so know nothing. On, that depended so much on your knowledge. So if it was a subject that you were confident in, that was kind of okay, but there yeah. wasn't any kind of national gauge to say, oh, look, kids in year four, they should be dividing using the formal method. There was nothing there. So it was uh, for an unexperienced teacher as an NQT, 
making those decisions, I look back and I just think that's shocking. Why wasn't there something to shape that, I don't know, horizon? Yeah. Or give you something to aim for? It, it, it was quite shocking, really. Yeah, it, it was. And sadly, we, we've now gone too far, haven't we? The whole thing is now so utterly prescriptive that... Uh, yeah. Do you, do you remember there was going to be a rewrite? Of the yes. Program? It was before the 2014 one. I think it was the Rose Report. Mm, it was. And that was going to be this beautiful, creative curriculum that you could shape and move and then suddenly what we weren't allowed to do that anymore but yeah, and then michael gove got his blooming hands on it didn't he yeah i do think we got things right i i've got to tell you i'm an advocate of things like the numeracy strategy um oh i i i, I really like anything which says these are the methods that that research has shown make the most effective mathematicians, make the most effective readers, or whatever aspect of the curriculum we're looking at. I think that's so important. The trouble is now, we seem to have generated a curriculum. I'll be interested in your views mathematically, because ma the mathematics curriculum I'm pretty comfortable with, but, oh but, but the grammar punctuation nonsense we're now inundated with is purely a design for something we can test and we can test easily. I haven't got enough of an opinion about that because right. I've been doing this job for 23 years. I have not taught a daily literacy lesson or English lesson in that time. My life went and tunneled and funneled down into the world of maths, yeah. which I still pinch myself about because what, what a privilege that is. I didn't know when I first started teaching that jobs like mine existed. Right. Did you, you did you have a big passion for maths even when you started? No, my passion was in sport when I started, but right. I've got a maths degree. So I had a mother, God bless her soul, she's gone now, but she said to me when I said, right, mum, I think I'm going to do teaching. And she went, oh, good idea, because all my family are teachers. Dad was a, a maritime lecturer. Oh, wow. So she, yeah, and so um, he was a captain, actually, with BP Tankers. And uh, he came... He came ashore and he then worked in nautical colleges. So teaching was kind of in us. Um, and she said to me at the time, I said, Mum, I'm going to go and do primary ed and I, I think I'm going, to, um, I'm going to concentrate on sport. And she went, oh, no, Jill, you don't want to do that. Bearing in mind, I had an A-level in uh, maths and physics and computer science, but that was boring. And, uh, <laughs> and she said, well, do your maths. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK. And actually what a massive life-changing piece of advice because there is money in advising in PE but it's not as big a part of the curriculum as maths is now no. PE people could argue with me for that and I, and I would completely accept their argument it, it, what I it's mean as is, important isn't it but it's not as big it's not as big because it's it, it you know teachers aren't teaching it every day no and so you know, we've got this this dichotomy of we've got teachers who have a degree in anything who come into, for example, skit or other teacher training routes, and they come in with a marine, uh, you know, a, I don't know, a, a marine degree or a, a drama yeah. degree or a engineering degree. But whatever their degree is, they've got to teach maths every day. And they've and got to teach it well. And they've got to teach it well because the children and the expectations at the moment is this thing called mastery, where mm. children 
it's about children understanding the why and the how. Now, if teachers don't know the why and the how, that's where my job comes in and I have to work with teachers to give them, well, this is why we do what we do. And the light bulbs that go on in our skip training groups and I work in schools, not just skip schools, but work with teachers across the board in primary. And when you can, when they say to you, oh, oh, that's when you realise how badly possibly they were taught or we were taught because we were taught procedures and we were taught this and that. Mm. And now it's about, well, okay, but why do we do that? When, when we add those two fractions, wh- why do we do it like that? Well, it's, it, we just do that and that. Yeah, but, yeah, but why? Mm. How does that method work? So we've got this generation of te- adults and there's still a big thing called maths anxiety. And we've got this generation of adults who are scared of the subject or who physically dislike the subject, but we're expecting them to teach maths every day. And that's why I've got the best job in the world, (laughs) because I get to work with teachers who desperately want to improve their practice, mostly, not always, but mostly I work with teachers who want to improve. And what a privilege that is to be able to be with them making that improvement. And that is really cool. Yeah, no, it is. And and actually, I think the vast majority of teachers desperately want to do a good job, don't they? Yeah, of course they do. It's, it's too tough a job to do if you don't enjoy what you're doing. Yeah, and, I would uh, agree with that. And I, I do think times have changed. I do think um, we don't have as many people in teaching who don't want to be there as when I first started. There seemed mm. to be people who were there and they just stayed in the job because they needed the job and it fitted in with their children. They didn't really want to be there. I don't think that happens now. No, it's definitely a career now. Mm. Yeah, it, it is. And I used to say to my to my staff, you know, I said, you haven't got to love what you do, but the children have to think you do. Yeah. And, uh, and make sure that when you're in the classroom, they think you love being there and you love working with them. I was never told that, were you? So I'm looking back at pedagogy and I remember going to educational lectures and just nobody really explained it to me. So I knew about PRJ and I Mm. knew it wasn't just three initials, PRJ. I knew it was a person. (laughs) I knew what he did. I knew about Bruner. But I didn't, nobody really made the connection for me between this is theory and this is classroom practice and this is how those two things come together. This is Mm. why we do what we do when we. So Mm. I remember teaching... As a student, I remember t- <laughs> I remember doing a lesson and we were given the uh, objective. They were doing Romans and we were told, me and, me and my friends, two students teaching the lesson together, we had to teach them all about Roman roads. So we spent hours. We turned up in the lesson in Tobas because we thought that would be a cool thing to do. And it is a cool thing to do? <laughs> no, it wasn't. We talked. No, of course it was. It sounds fantastic. No, it Just really wasn't. It really wasn't. Because all we did is we'd done a drawing on the blackboard. <laughs> you know, we are back in the days with coloured chalk. Yeah. And we'd done this drawing of a Roman road, like side view, like you were in the ground and you could see all the different layers. Yeah. And we talked them through it. And then we went, we kind of went, ta da! Like we'd finished. <laughs> We hadn't thought, right, how are we going to engage the children? What are they actually going to be doing? Well, no, you had the toga. No, no, no. Okay, that got a giggle when we walked in. But at that, uh, you know, after five minutes of looking at someone <laughs> in the toga, that's not interesting anymore. No. 
<laughs> and, uh, and we just talked at them and we told them this and we told them that. We hadn't thought, well, how are we going to get the children interested in this, apart from the Tobies? We hadn't thought about, well, what do we want them to remember? We hadn't thought, well, what are they going to do after we've done our exposition? You know, there was, an, there was a complete disconnect between, you know, this theory that we're studying. We're studying it because that has to influence the yeah, choices. That's, that's why you do your training, isn't it? You expect someone somewhere to say, and then what happens after you've done that? Yeah. Because I, I know when I did my last lesson observation as a as a student teacher, my mentor said, children love being taught by you. Just make sure they all learn something. <laughs> and and that was how it was, because that's that's the point. It's the adage, isn't it? What's the oh when two two blokes sitting in a pub and one turns to the other and says, Oh, I've taught my dog to whistle. And the guy says, I can't hear him whistling. He says, I taught him. I, that doesn't mean they've learned to. <laughs> and it's absolutely that. So no, it is. I do think when you start into the world of teaching, you're you're concentrating so much on what you're doing and you're saying and you're, you forget that there's a 50% relationship with the people opposite you and they've got, you've got to draw them in. So the, Yeah, you have to. I, I say all the time, you must look at the learning through the eyes of the child. I know, but nobody said that to me. No, they didn't say it to me either. I didn't have a clue. I wouldn't have had a clue what it meant either. No, but um, it was, because it, was it takes time, that. doesn't it? It takes oh, time. To... But I look at Skit now, the people in Skit, and when when I first was involved, when was that? Oh, Fifteen years ago, I think. Mm. When I when I shadowed a chap called Keith Windsor, who is oh, I love Keith. I used to work with Keith. Awesome bloke. Yeah. And I, I I modeled myself on him. He was just an awesome trainer. He was secondary trained, uh, but he was able to to completely, quietly inspire children, adults, mm. the caretaker, anybody you talk to him. He was yeah. just the most gorgeous bloke. And and I remember thinking, right, these guys are gonna have one year of training. How dare they? I did four years in my degree yeah. how can they learn what i learned in four years in one year and now 15 years into it and being a skit trainer as well i just think why how on earth did that college um you can look on on my website if you want to know where i went <laughs> um, but how can that college honestly say they prepared teachers for the real world we were not prepared the real world no not even slightly I... not even slightly not in when you know we had half a term doing observations then we had a whole term doing a teaching practice and then we had maybe another so i did possibly 30 weeks training in my four years yeah well our lot beat that hands down because they're in schools all the time yeah and all the time see the nitty-gritty and that that's pretty cool Mm. That's no. much more preparatory than preparatory, preparatory than preparatory, we were. Yeah. That one, no, it, it is. It's so much better. I, I thought when I left my college, I don't know anything about teaching. Actually, I just get on well with people, so that will have to hold me in good stead whilst I learn how to teach. Yeah, because because I haven't been taught it. But I and, I, uh, re I remember teaching maths in my first one or two years, and I say this quite openly to the students. I was dreadful. So, so I was always someone who found numbers easy. 
Mm. Nobody had prepared me to teach maths to children who didn't find maths easy. No. But um, if they didn't get it, I was like, well, ooh. So what did you do in your early days then? Do it again louder. (laughs) (laughs) Just do this, you get the answer. I mean, the classic, absolutely no do's, because I wasn't prepared for the gaps that children would have or the holes that they would fall down into. No. So, um, nothing in my training prepared prepared me for that. So, you know, there is such, and, and that's really what, what I want to say to anybody listening here. The materials and resources that are out there now to guide you in your early years of teaching are a gazillion percent better than anything that has been around before. Yeah. You know, there are so many good free resources online to guide you into mastery teaching and teaching for mastery so that children understand we, we never had that no. and it's it's really our responsibility to get our heads around right how am I going to teach this let's look at all of these things what's there to help me guide me into what I should be doing with my year fours when I'm teaching division yeah know? but it's but it's what you say isn't it it's how how I'm going to teach it how I'm yeah. going to teach it so they understand it because yeah. you can have the best resources in the world, can't you? But if yeah. all the teacher does is say, right, now off you go and work through this resource, yeah. well, that's not going to develop good anythings, is it? No. It's going to be people who are good at finishing things off that they've been told to do. Yeah, it's so I always, I always say to my students and, and anybody, any teachers, if you're going to plan a lesson, the first thing you need to do is do the maths in that lesson mm. and do it yourself because you need to understand what's involved. And if you just go, oh, yeah, we'll do page whatever, and then, oh, yeah, and then I'll do the next page, and you don't prepare that, and you don't prepare yourself for the input that you need to give them so they don't fall down holes or fall off the edge of the pavement or whatever analogy you want, uh, you know, you're you're not going to teach a very successful lesson because you're not going to spot or anticipate what could go wrong or where children could go off on a tangent without realising it. Yeah, that's so true. So so would you say, is that your first tip, Jill, for anyone starting their new teaching career? Would that be number one? Make sure you've done the maths yourself first before you try to teach the lesson. Yes. When I, when I, when you said to me, oh, you know, um, yeah, we're going to talk about this and that in this podcast. One of the first things I wrote down was, well, if I, you know, if I was going to give top tips to people, what would it be? And right at the top is do the maths. Mm. actually do the maths yourself because a you will then understand what you're trying to achieve you also understand the potential difficulties and it shapes then how you would deliver it to children so it would it it, and it would also build your own confidence if i if i know what i'm doing and i've got my head around what i'm doing i'm now going to be able to teach that in a far better way than if i just try and wing it and go from the slides that are provided by all these resources online and if i just try and deliver that i'll be okay well no you won't because you haven't thought enough about what's involved no you won't know what's involved unless you do it exactly and that's especially true isn't it when you're inexperienced because the whole point of experience is that you've actually done it several times children have gone down that hole you've had to pull them back out and you realise the various strategies you can use, and you can never know that, can you? That's impossible to know when you're a new teacher. But isn't that the move from novice to expert? 
Absolutely. You know, as a novice teacher, you are you will make mistakes. Hmm. You know, I've, I've said to you quite openly, my first years of teaching, I was absolutely dreadful. And I look back now and I'm shocked at myself. But at that time, I didn't know any better. Yeah, so, and you shouldn't you shouldn't be hard on yourself, should you? Because I tell the trainees whenever I lecture them just how poor I was. I said children loved being in my class. Yeah. But but my skill as a teacher compared to where I am now, well, negligible. If we had a graph, you know, 1984, I started teaching. If we had a graph and quality of teaching was on the y-axis, well, there'd be <laughs> nothing in 1984. You know, if it was popularity of teacher, I'd be pretty high on the yeah. y-axis, but skill as teacher, so low. And but then, of course... And in a way, that's got to be. I, I, I don't. You can't package up experience no. and give that to people. And and I think the teachers I would want working in in teaching today would be the teachers who are continually on the on the path to improvement. Yeah. As soon as the teacher says or gives the impression, oh, you don't need to tell me that. I've nailed it. I want them to leave. It's almost time to leave because teaching well, will no, as... always be. That growth of, oh, here's a new idea, here's some new research, or oh, how's that going to fit in with my beliefs and what and what I believe. So we've got to be really careful. I think that that's where um skip providers have to be very, very clear with their students about we're going to be talking about stuff in this year, and and you'll maybe do surface level understanding of that, but that will deepen. Mm the longer and longer that you teach and, and you will be able to continually come back to this and go, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I've got the machinations now to make sense of what they were talking about last year when I was doing my training. Absolutely. I had an email from from a trainee last week. I'd, I'd marked an assignment and sent it back to her and I said, this is so perceptive, so thoughtful. It's a great analysis of your teaching. And, uh, and she said, oh, that means so much to me because... Uh, I've been feeling fairly unconfident and uh, and this has really boosted me up. And I replied and I said, in three to four years, you will be a much better teacher than you are now. I said, and but you have to be comfortable with that because three to four years experience is what you need to be consistently good every day in every lesson because it's too complicated, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit so, like mountain climbing, isn't it? another little analogy you know when you first start mountain climbing you don't go for the highest mountain no that's something that you build up towards and i think that's a little bit of teaching is mm. um you know in the first year your our job is to make sure that you're at base camp that's where yeah. we want everyone to be but after that you're you're continually climbing this 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 mountain of understanding how to teach and how to yeah teach well. and sometimes just like mountaineering you have to come back down a bit, don't you? Because <laughs> I've just got a bit of altitude sickness here, so I actually I need to come back a bit. And, or and sometimes I'll... you fall, Jeremy. Absolutely. You know, don't you? And you, you, you kind of crash at the bottom and you go, what the heck happened there? And the next time you climb, you don't do that again. No, and the most important thing is the fall is never too dramatic. Absolutely. Yeah. So what about, what about another top tip then? Oh, another top tip. Um... A silent classroom is not necessarily the best classroom. Hurrah! Or the other way around, a noisy classroom where they're talking about their learning is a self-supporting collaborative classroom. 
because in that oh, classroom, love that love that term self-supporting collaborative classroom yeah so oh, it, don't forget that one everyone self-supporting collaborative classroom well, that's it, what it talking you, is it's, it's you realizing as the teacher you're not the only person who can teach in that room and we learn from and with each other all the time in our life but suddenly we put ourselves up as the expert no listen to me listen to me well, no, sometimes you just want to shut up and let them listen to other people who are doing equally good talking. Yeah, and, and, and helping them to become better at that talk is so important, isn't it? So I you're think gonna... it's thinking as well, isn't it? Yeah. I think it, it, it's giving them really good stuff to think about mm. and then giving them the skill of getting that thought out of their head. Yeah. In math, we just call that reasoning, don't we? But and I, I guess in all subjects, we call that reasoning. I call it reasoning in science, too. When yeah. I say to them, children yeah. need to be able to explain and they and, need to and have join ideas. ideas together. Exactly. Even if in maths, they're half formed ideas. So another thing about maths is that often people think, oh, yeah, I like maths because it's always right or wrong. Well, it isn't. No. And a lot of thinking in maths, what we want our children to be able to do is to have an idea and share that idea, even if it's half formed or wrong. We want mm. them to be able to have a thought and language giving them the opportunity to get that thought out of their heads. Um, so, but that takes an ethos of it's okay to make a mistake, which is what all the growth mindset stuff exactly beautifully to that mistakes mm. are mistakes make our brains ready to listen. So if we make a mistake, our brains physically put chemicals in place to say, right, we've made a mistake. I don't want to repeat that mistake. So mm. now listen up really closely because we need to correct it. And the best thing is if you and I talk about my mistake, anybody who listens to that conversation, their brains grow as well because yeah. their brains are going, oh, she made a mistake. We don't want to make that mistake. Wonderful. And that's I... all work by Joe Bowler over in the growth mindset team mm. in Stanford University. She's the professor of maths over there. And I found some of her writing just inspirational and it fits hand in glove with everything that we're talking about in this country with mastery so, yeah it transfers so easily doesn't it to other subjects it's not about just about maths because well, no, actually Jeremy, what... my world is all about maths i know yes, it is i take your point it is i know it is but you can transfer these ideas can't you of course because it's because it's about how do we make great learning a third tip oh third we love third tips third tips tip three don't rush to understand something takes time. Mm. So don't just deliver it and move on. You've got to let, you've got to give it time. So this whole idea in the old days, we uh, the old days, in the noughties and early, early teens, Ofsted inspectors expected one objective, one lesson, move on. Well, understanding doesn't work like that. It definitely doesn't. Understanding can take two or three or four or five lessons um, to to get for suddenly that oh moment that lovely light bulb moment that if mm. you're there when you see it it's a wonderful thing for children but this whole idea of i'm teaching for an hour and by the end of this they've got to understand this well they might only be part way there but that's okay but i think the biggest thing i'm saying is slow down because often Definitely. by slowing down you're going deeper and you're giving children time to absorb and time to think and time to play with it i love the word play as well well, that's fantastic, isn't it? And it's so essential because, yeah. because there's no way you can develop these complex ideas in a lesson. 
it was the nonsense of what you've just said the mm. idea that we'll have an objective for this lesson and then we'll we'll go and do another one next time mm. at least all this new Ofsted that's where Rosenshine I, I quite like mm. all the Rosenshine stuff that talks about you know reviewing learning building on the next thing checking for understanding questioning and probing there's a lot of stuff in his work that resonates with good maths teaching but the only thing I worry about is is where does problem solving live within that I know I, that's really interesting you say that because mm. I say that in science all the time yeah in previous decades we used to have problem solving all the time in science where you had mm. to take a range of different ideas and concepts synthesize them together to to be able to find a solution to a problem. And it was so powerful for learning. And yeah. it's just about gone. I'd, it, I'd... And it, it has in maths as well. Uh, mm. uh, so really, word problems are what's being deemed as problem solving. That's not real problem solving. The real problem is, I'm here. The problem's asking me to do this. I haven't got a clue where to start. And that's no. a real problem. That's not what uh, children are getting a diet of in the moment. In, in maths classrooms, if they're following White Rose, for example. But a lot of schemes aren't giving rich, extended problems for children to solve. That that worries me at the moment. That's the bit I'm working on in the background. With yeah, no, and I think I think it's essential. It's, it's one in this neatly packaged curriculum, isn't it? It sort of comes back to what I was saying, not much as we're not going back to grammar, but it's, it's, this, <laughs> neat, it's this neatly packaged curriculum that's easy to assess and and we want to control, I think control is the right word. We want to control what's happening in classrooms from the government side. And instead of saying, actually, we need teachers to make decisions about what makes great learning. And as long as we've got all the benchmarks in place, then actually we can be much freer about what we expect from how teachers do things. I like what you said there about being freer. And a, and a big message for me is that some of the schemes that are out there that schools are using to teach maths are great, but they're not awesome because no. they were never written for your children. So for me, it's always about, right, this is what the scheme says I should be doing. Here are some examples they're suggesting. Here are some slides, but it's got to be down to the teacher to take that off the page and make it real and live and relevant for their children. So you can't just deliver a series of slides written by somebody else and think that you're doing a good job. No, you can't. You do an okay job. You might be able to do an okay job. Good enough. Best. Yeah. yeah. But, but it, that's but not it what will never, it will never be brilliant if you teach like that. And you'll be bored. You deliver sure, not half. The, you want, the fun, you isn't it? I don't know about you, but the fun I always found with teaching was thinking, ooh, I can see how, why they don't understand this. What are we going to do now then? What's the thing, uh, you know, and one of the things we expect, isn't it, of trainees is adaptation of lesson? lessons. Did you ever have a lesson where not even halfway through you realised you've got it, like, completely wrong and you just had to stop and do something else? Uh, did you ever have that? D did you just say, have I ever had that? <laughs> you've described 75% of my <laughs> lessons in my first term of teaching there. I used to, I used to stop. We used to do so much handwriting and reading. In my first, yeah, you'd, you'd fill the gap, you'd fill the last. You'd say, right, we'll just leave it there for a, for yeah, today, yeah. and but, we'll come back but, to this. We'll do a bit we, more handwriting. My class had the best handwriting in the school. But our perception of that is that we hadn't done our job. 
But actually, mm. that's the best thing you could have done at that moment. Absolutely. And because I met someone, actually, on, interestingly. You'd digging a bigger and bigger hole, wouldn't you? Yeah, three or four years ago, I met someone who was in my first class. And she said, Mr. Crook, how lovely to see you. I said, Emma, how lovely to see you too. And she said, uh, are you still teaching? I said, oh, I'm not teaching. I've retired. But I said, I'm still teaching teachers, but I'm not teaching children anymore. And she said, oh, we loved being in your class. I said, did you? That's good to hear. She said, yeah, we couldn't wait to get into class every day. I said, oh, I'm really pleased about that. I said, did you learn anything? She said, I don't know, actually, but we had a wonderful time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to reply to that. But, yeah. but if It was what it was like. There, that's more than half the battle, isn't it? Totally. And we did. They learned all sorts of things, but I bet they went on to the next teacher with horrific gaps <laughs> where I hadn't managed to join things together properly for them. But uh, Did you do fractions last year with Mr? No. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I had a great lesson, actually. I remember teaching fractions once, and, and I said to the class, shall we move on tomorrow, on to the next thing? And there was murmurings, you know. I said, right, well, let's have a vote then. Who wants to move on tomorrow? Who thinks it would be good to do another day or two on this? Well, 90% said another day or two. So back to what you said about deepening and mm. working for understanding. We forget that children understand themselves quite well. Oh, they do. They you know, they, they know whether they've got something or whether they haven't got it. Yeah, and if we involve them in, in, in making decisions about their learning, then they're expert at it, aren't they? There we go. Have you got any more tips, Jill? I want anybody in the world of teaching and teaching maths believing that every child can learn maths. Yes. So there is no... I mean, the classic line is there isn't a maths gene. You're not born with, oh, you can do maths, even though parents will tell their children, oh, that's right, love, I was no good at maths. Oh, no, that's it. How terrible is that at parents' yeah. evening? So I was never any good. Teaching. Well, your child is good. Yeah, so if a child can learn, they can learn maths. Mm. End of. Because making it a biological thing infers that God made people to be mathsy people or non-mathsy people. Well, when God made people, there wasn't maths. <laughs> no. Maths was made by man, not by God. So, you know, it's a, it's a really stupid thing, but it's so ingrained in us that we believe it. We believe that there are some children who are just good at maths and some children who are just born to be not good at maths, and that is not true. Definitely not true. My 91-year-old mother says I was never any good at maths, darling. I don't know why you are, because I did maths A-level as well, and... Uh... <laughs> I said, well, you just weren't taught very well, Mum. That was the issue. It was nothing to do with your innate ability as a mathematician. No, She's a brilliant musician. I said, you can deal with all those fractions of notes and combine all those different fractions together into ten fingers when you play the piano. I said, but you tell me you can't do maths, I'll be serious. Now, maths, brain science, again, there is a part of our brain called the finger dissemination part of our brain. And when we do maths, that lights up. And that's all to do with, you know, the musical ability to play a guitar or play a piano yeah. and you just know where your fingers are going. Yeah. That's linked to um, maths ability. Is it? Yeah. Mm. yeah. So even as a, an advanced mathematician like myself or you, when we do maths, that part of our brain lights up. Even though we're not using fingers, or we might be using fingers, I don't know about you, Jeremy, 
We might be using fingers, but we don't have to physically. I use I use fingers and toes. Well, there we go. You're Mayan then. <laughs> it was the Mayan culture who had a base of twenty because they had fingers and toes. And was it? Yeah. Wow, that's something I've learned. Jill, we've got time for one more thing, if you've got one more thing. Oh, do you know, oh right, okay, one more thing that's not maths. Hey, nice. I had a young girl called Jackie. Can't tell you her surname for obvious reasons. And she came from a family of travellers. And this is when I was working in Harlow. And this kid was dirty and not popular and didn't really communicate, wouldn't make eye contact, couldn't read and write. Um, and it was really hard to get her to be able to access anything. And then I went on a PE course and I was really lucky that I, because I told you I was quite passionate about sport and the, yeah. and the PE advisor of the time, I knew his wife and some, and his wife dropped out of, or it might've been his wife, somebody dropped out of this big PE course that was happening in Cambridge University on Homerton College. And this was a national PE course for about 20 people for four days over a weekend. So my school agreed for me to be off on a Friday and a Monday, and I, I turned into a student for four days. Uh, so this was in my NQT year. And we did a day on gymnastics, a day on dance, a day on athletics, and a day on games. And I can't do maths because there was swimming in there as well. But we <laughs> had these intense training periods, and one of them was on dance. And that's how I met my very, very good friend, Sarah Robson. Who, who does what I do, but in PE, because I nearly broke her finger because we were in the rainforest and, and, and the trees were chopped down and my elbow landed on her little finger. Anyway, digress. <laughs> the, the reason I'm telling you this story is for the first time in my life, I discovered that dance was quite a cool thing. Not dance as in structured ballet, tap dance, but, but movement to music as an expression form. Yep. Went on this course, completely inspired, came back, brought it to my children and... Jackie, this kid who couldn't communicate in any other way, was the most wonderful mover. Oh, brilliant. She was able to express herself and move in a way that left the rest of the kids absolutely dumbfounded. And that day in that lesson was a changing point in her life. Oh, that's just brilliant. First time, isn't it? The other kids were clapping her. Oh. And honestly, it, it, I'm, I'm goose pimpling now. Because no, so am I. The first time I'd managed to communicate with this child and turn her on to learning in any shape or form. And that will definitely go down in my annals as um, one of my most proud moments of yeah, being definitely. able to give her something that turned her on to learning. Yeah. Oh, what a brilliant place to stop. Because everyone listening can have goose pimples. Oh. Can't yeah, go and get some because... calamine lotion. We'll get rid of them. That's it. Jill, thank you so much. That's oh, just God. been as fascinating as I knew it would be. So, uh, Where's the time gone? I don't know what happened. I though. know, it just flies by. But I find this, anytime you talk to anyone who's passionate about what they're doing, it just flies by, doesn't it? And, well, I'm sorry to everybody for making this so long. Well that done my intention every minute has been worth it <laughs> and if you've got any questions you contact jeremy crook and complain to him thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> that's a perfect place to finish it was interesting jill when you said that uh, god didn't make anyone a mathematician and uh, they learned to be a mathematician because galileo actually said 
nature is written in mathematical language, so maybe God had more of a hand in it than you think. I'm a big fan of Einstein quotes as well, and he said, mathematics is in its way the poetry of logical ideas. So what now, listeners? Is there something Jill has said that resonates with you? I'm sure there is. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. We'll keep you updated on what's to come on Twitter at WhatNQT. I look forward to being with you next time for another great educational chat. Until then, I'm Jeremy Crook, and this has been the latest podcast from What I Wish I Knew as an NQT. Slash ECT.